So we just thank you, Lord, that you are one who is actively working towards shaping us as a people into the image of your son. That you are calling us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. That, that we who once had no name have been given a name. And so, Father, we just ask now, as we prepare to read your word, to study its truth, and to, Father, understand the implications for our daily lives, we ask that you would help us. And Father, we pray not only for ourselves, but we continue to pray for the community at large, Father, thinking of other congregations in this community. Thank you specifically this morning of Trinity Baptist Church. We thank you for Matt Marston, their pastor, Father. We pray that you would preserve him in the faith, Lord, that he would be a man diligent to seek your scriptures, that he would find himself often in prayer for, for his people, the, the body of Christ and the lost community right around them in this area. So, Father, we say thank you for this church. May you grow them into the image of your son. May they be faithful to the scriptures. And may they look to that inheritance one day that is being kept for them as they are being guarded until that day when you return. Father, we also think of Central Valley Community Church of South Dakota. Father, we thank you so much that there is churches throughout the states, Father, that will sing your praises. And Father, we, we believe that one day all these churches that are spread out not only in the states, but throughout the globe will one day be gathered together around the throne. And Father, we long for that day. But till then, would you preserve this church? Would your word be central to what they do? May they be like the Bereans who study the word. And Father, it may become part of them. It may bear the fruit. May they proclaim Christ and you build your church through the proclamation of Jesus. Father, we think specifically also of the nations, thinking specifically of the people of Denmark today. Uh, Father, we realize and we recognize, Lord, that there is people you have among every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And we know among these people in Denmark, Lord, there are your sheep. And so we rejoice to know that you're a God who is saving the nations. And so we want to plead with you, Father, that you would do a, a great work there in Denmark, a, a place that was once very rich with a gospel-centered church, Father, but has seen and fallen on dark times as the gospel has been silenced, not because the gospel is not powerful, but because we, your people, have grown quiet. And so, Father, we pray that you would send people, send people from Russia over, send people from Switzerland or England or France up to this region of Denmark, Father. And would you maybe even day send one of us who would give of ourselves for the greatest thing we know, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, help us. Help these people. May they come to truth through your word, we pray. Lord, as we always ask, we ask that you would help us to become a people who show honor to all. And Father, showing that the distinct difference that we have become as your people. We ask these things for your glory, for our joy in you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. For some of us in this room, you've never been in this section of the building. Um, this actually used to be the old auditorium of Calvary back in the early times when Miss Mildred was around and Philip was around and just a few of us have been around and Mary was over here before they built the other auditorium. And so we've just transitioned over here because we want to be mindful and good stewards of finances and it costs a lot of money to turn those big ACs on over there. And so we want to just continue to gather here and, and, and see what the Lord would do as we grow. We can move ourselves back over there. So that means we need to be heralds, heralds of the gospel um, so that one day the Lord can continue to grow his bride here at Calvary. And so we're just thankful that you're here. Um, normally I will have a mic, um, but we just forgot to bring it over. So you, I have to project today. So hopefully you can hear me. Can everybody hear me? Okay. Yeah. I've got a voice that carries a smaller room, so we're good, but I'm so excited. This is one of the most interesting sections I think of all of scripture. And it's because it, it, it helps us to see something that I think we often forget as followers of Christ. 
And it's this interesting reality that, that we, we feasted our, our hearts and minds on the passage last week that called us chosen ones, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people of his own possession, those who were not a people, now we are his people, those who did not receive, now receive mercy. And so this beautiful idea in the, in, in the epistle of Peter is that he is speaking to what he calls exiles. We're going to have another word added here, sojourners, those who, who believe and live as if this place is not their home. And I think nowhere more than in the States does this need to be a present reality. More than in the United States, because in the United States, we love to identify ourselves first and foremost as what? Americans. I'm a United States citizen. And then I am grateful that I live in a country with so many freedoms. I have brother who served in the military protecting those freedoms and some of you have served and I'm so grateful for that. But we must remember that we are not God's people because we're United States citizens. We are God's people because of Christ and Christ alone. This becomes the greatest identifier of all that we are, no matter what country we live in. And this is one of the things he begins to highlight for us today. And today I want to start with just two simple questions. And then the text is going to answer these questions for us. Who do you say you are? Who do you say you are? Where do you find your basic identity right now? Like if I were to ask you, who are you? How would you answer that question? How would you answer that question? Would you say, well, uh, I I, I might say I'm I'm a father of seven and a wife to Shelly. Is that true? Yeah, that's a truth. But, but at, at its core, that's not my basic identity. I could say I'm a pastor. I'm a, one of the elders at Calvary Baptist Church in Moultrie, Georgia. Is that true? Absolutely. But at its most core, that's not really my basic identity. My basic identity, if you ground it down to its very root, is I am a child of the king. I'm a chosen one. I'm a royal priesthood. I've been named by God himself. And at our core, we have to understand that's what we become as followers of Christ. Above all else, we become God's chosen possession. And this changes everything about our lives. I remember when I was a young man, I grew up playing soccer. My father was a soccer player. I know it wasn't popular for a long time, but um, I, I grew up in Central Florida, and it was a little bit more popular than it is in South Georgia. But I wanted everyone, so soccer was my identity. And you know how I knew that? It's because I wore the Adidas shoes, and I had the soccer shirts, right? And, and everything about me was just displaying soccer, because that was my identity. But what's amazing is, is when I stopped playing soccer, guess what I stopped doing? Stop looking like that soccer player. I started assuming the identity of something else. This is why we see all in our culture. If you're a part of this group, you have to begin to look like this group. If you're a part of this group, you begin to look like this group. And, and what we must understand is we are in the midst of an identity crisis in our society. We're in the midst of an identity crisis in our society. And we know this is true. We love to hear things about our identity. The most popular Christian song ever now is one song. Anybody know what it is? You Say by Laura Daigle. Now, what if you agree or disagree about the way that song proclaims? It's been on the top of the charts for 63 weeks, which declares to us this reality. We are all searching for an identity that's not our own. We're all searching for identity that's outside of us because everywhere we look, 
It always fails. It always crumbles underneath the weight of expectations. And this is why Peter spends so much of the first two chapters simply declaring, revealing who we are as exiles. Let's just look at a few of those things. Look there with me at verses 1-3. through I just want to remind us of where he's built out to. It says, Blessed be the Father, the God and Father. I'm in chapter 1, verse 3. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be living, born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's looking us square in the face and he's saying, you have true living hope. This is what begins to define God's people, a hope that is not grounded in the things of this world or anything else, but it's in the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He continues to build this out even further, calls us to be a holy people as God is holy and calls us to be those who pursue truth and obedience unto the Lord. In that section we feasted our hearts and minds on last week, look there with me, chapter 2, verse 9. We have to read verses 9 and 10 as we build into the text for this week, 11 and 12. So look there with me. He has just got done talking about those who stumble over the word of God, which is Christ himself, the living stone, as they were destined to do. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's like Peter's just bouncing on the, stomping his foot on the ground saying, you are something much greater than you realize. You are God's chosen people. You are the ones whom he has pulled out of darkness and he has placed into his marvelous, glorious light. And then right flowing out of that who you are, he does something he's already done once. And look at this question here. In verse 11, he says, beloved. And I think that's a twofold phrase. I think Peter's calling us beloved of the Father, but he's also saying, I love you. As as your apostle who's writing to you, I I love God's people and I love you. He says, beloved. And this one he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles Honorable, beautiful, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Wow. So basically, we have now the the layout of the rest of our lives as exiles. We have the layout of what it means to be a follower of God. My question, the second question, so the first question is, who do you say you are? And Paul, Peter's been building out this idea of you are children of God, chosen before the foundations of the world. God said his love and foreknowledge upon you, saved you, caused you to be born again to a living, real, imperishable hope. And now my second question is, how do you think your life and its actions relate to the world around you? How do you think now your life as a child of God, if you're in Christ, relates to the world around you? And I've been rocked by this text this week in so many different ways. 
What is the point of our life as exiles in a land that's not our home? How are we to live? How are we to work out our faith and salvation? Is it simply to expose wickedness by wagging our finger all the time at people? Is it isolation from corruption? Are we to be like the monks, right, who, who created monasteries and isolated themselves from the world so that they could, you know, just grind out their faith? Or has God seen fit in his loving kindness to us and his identity for the world said, I want you to be so intentional to walk in acts of kindness and thoughtfulness that your light shines my light. And so I think that's what Peter's doing here. Peter's reminding us, one, who you are. You see, this is what we constantly have to do as Christians. We we have to constantly remind ourselves of who we are in Christ. This morning I had to wake up and I said, praise God, I woke. And not because I earned my life from yesterday's efforts. But because God in His kindness, because of Christ, woke me and gave me abundant mercy. I woke as a child of God, not because of me, because he set his love on me. And by faith, I'm clinging to all that he is for me. And so this is the beautiful reality we have to know. And, and this is not the first time he's done this. Peter's so intentional. He goes, everything we do is identity into desires that change into actions that change. This is the pattern of scripture, right? So if you're like, well, how do I grow in my faith? You need to know more of your identity in Christ. And as that happens, you need to begin to let that transform your desires and what you long for and what you love. And that will spill over into actions that display light to a watching world. The problem is we spend so much of our energy where? In our actions. And and, and the Bible says it's, it's a little different. He says we spend our energy and time knowing who we are in God, what he's accomplished, and that changes me. And then guess what's going to happen? I'm going to bear the fruit. I'm going to be the light in the watching world. I'm going to be salt and light. And this isn't the first time that he's done this. Go back with me. We saw it at 1 Peter chapter 1. I just want to show you, this is one of the things Peter's doing. He's reminding the exiles and, and also reminding us that part of the process of living as God's people till he returns is this wrestling with our identity, who we are in him, our affections and desires into actions. Look at verse 13. Chapter one, just I want you to see there. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope a little bit on the grace that is to come. Is that what he says? No, it's not. What does he say? Set your hope fully, completely, totally on what I have coming for you. And remember that idea of preparing our minds. It's the idea of girding up your loins. Remember, and we talked about that, like they used to wear robes back then, right? And, and you can't run very well in robes. And so when they would have to exert energy or effort, what they would do is they would pull the back of their robe through their legs, pull it up way higher, and then tuck it into their belt. What did they just make? Shorts. <laughs> and they had to because there was going to be intentional energy and effort to do something. This is what preparing their minds is. Brothers and sisters, you cannot... Grow in your faith apart from a mind that is constantly meditating on God and his word and who you are in Christ. You cannot. You cannot. Christians love to think about God. They love to intentionally turn off Netflix so that they can get up early the next day and read God's word. 
They love to be those people that when there's confusing sections, they don't just say, oh, well, they go and find out the answers from from the elders of their church or other Christians that they know. They find intentional time not only to read the word, but to expose the word among others. That's the very definition of being a Christian. We become those who love to think about who we are. I love the fact that the Bible talks about it constantly, that we can become those type of people. And he says a little bit further in verse 14, he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions. There's that same word we're going to see in just a second. The passions of your flesh or desires of your flesh of your former ignorance. So we see those three words there, conformed, passion, ignorance. It's the same truth. Ignorance is the lack of what? Knowing who you are. Passions are produced as a result. So therefore you're conformed to the way of the world. If you want to become sanctified, and sanctification is a word saying more like Christ, more set apart for his work, more wholly devoted unto him, you, you have to be a people of the word. You have to be. Your Bible should not collect dust on the dash of your car. Your Bible should be worn and torn because you love to search its truths. Because the God who is the one who has called you by name has said, I've revealed myself through my scriptures. And again, I just want to implore you and encourage you. There are multiple opportunities for outside of Sundays for you to gather with this particular body. There's fire by nine. So as it's learning how to walk through the Old Testament, learn how to walk through the Old Testament on Thursdays at Starbucks with Pastor David. Maybe you're, you're newly married and, and you're trying to figure out this whole marriage thing and how the Bible describes the beauty of its truth. There's a marriage Bible study on Monday nights at my house, the Myrick house. There's redemption groups twice a week, Sunday nights and Friday nights. Just continual opportunities for you to be in the word of God. Knowing who he says you are and what Christ has done for you. So Christians understand that, that we begin to reflect the life that God has called us to reflect as we meditate on who he is and who we are in him. Go back with me now to 1 Peter chapter 2. So we're going to wrestle through two, two main things. Paul says that if we're to be exiles who, who know who we are, that we are those who fight with inward discipline, the passions of the flesh. Look there again with me at verse 11. Beloved, it's a pretty good idea as sojourners and exiles to try a little bit. to. He doesn't use that kind of language, does he? He doesn't say maybe you should fight against. He says, I urge you. This is a pleading. This is Peter looking at exiles and saying, you must fight. You must fight the passions of the flesh. And so we need to ask ourselves what? What is this passions of the flesh? What is this that is the Bible describes here waging war against your soul? I don't know about you. If something's waging war against me, I want to do what? I want to wage war back against it. And this is what Peter is doing here. He's saying, guys, you, we've, I've just declared, we've just reminded ourselves of who you are in Christ. Chosen, holy, you are God's chosen possession. Now, wage war against the passions of the flesh. So let's ask ourselves, what is this passions of the flesh? Maybe you're brand new to following Christ. Or maybe you've never heard this language, the passions of the flesh before. The beautiful thing about the Bible is if we read it, it interprets itself. 
by looking at other passions and sections of Scripture that use the same type of, type of language. Well, let's look at just a few. You just listen to them. If you want to jot them down and read them again later. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. This is Paul describing to the church of Ephesus some glorious realities of who he used to be. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, the way you carried out your life, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And listen to this language. Among whom we all once lived in accordance with the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So Paul helps us to understand this idea of passions of the flesh. It's, how, it's what I was born into. I'm born into this desire to love everything about me and the things of this world. Because he uses the, the all-inclusive language of all there. Paul says it again in Galatians 5. It's in this beautiful section in chapter 5 where he, he talks about those who will not inherit the kingdom of God and those who have the fruit of the Spirit. And he ends as he ends this section, he says, and those who belong to Christ Jesus, what do we call those people? Christians, exiles, follow God. So, so let's change the language. Let's put the same word in them. If you're an exile, you are those who crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. Hmm. Same type of language. We're to wage war. How do we do that? By putting it to death. This desire, this, this passion that wells up within us. I wrote about Romans 13, 14. Paul again says here, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desire. So it's this interesting language that the brothers and sisters, every morning you wake up and, and, and if you're like me, you know this to be true, right? The Lord saved me out of a, just a dark, despicable time in my life where I love serving my sin and my flesh. But the moment that he converted me, that he saved me, that he breathed his spirit into me, it didn't just all go away. Like it's been a daily battle to put to death the old Josh. And to walk in this new Josh. And, and some of the language we see here is that the passions of the flesh are those desires those things we want deep at our core that are of the old person we used to be. The former sinful, loving self. And Peter, throughout this letter, he highlights three specific things. And I think it's interesting that he highlights these because I think these are some of the same things we struggle with in American culture, really any culture. If we were to look throughout them, and we'll see them throughout the next several weeks, sexual morality, drunkenness, but here's the one that caught me off guard. We become a people who don't retaliate. Because here's the interesting thing, right? We say that all the time. Yeah, sexual morality and drunks. Those are the first two everyone says, right? Usually we lump those into this awful, evil person. Right? But he says we also become those who do not retaliate. We don't let anger control us. And so we're going to see this unfold. And so maybe you're struggling with any one of those three or just another desire of the flesh. And the Bible commends you to constantly put it to death. So then our question should be what? How? How do I put the passions of the flesh to death? And why should I? Well, if we look, look there at verse 11. He says, we need to abstain from the passions of the flesh because they are waging war against your soul. 
In order to answer this question, we need to understand what Paul said has already happened. We've been called out of what? Darkness and into what? Light. He says that's what God has done for us. He's called you out of this dark state, this deceitfulness of sin that that offers you the world and only provides you crap. He says, come over here to this inheritance that is undefiled, unfading, unperishable, and is lasting for all of eternity. He says, this side of the sinfulness of man is just deceiving you. It's saying, gratify that desire. It will fulfill you. It will satisfy you. And God is saying to you, no! I alone, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who took on flesh alone can satisfy you. And you know this to be true. Because you've chased your sin, haven't you? Did it satisfy? Maybe for a moment. But then you woke up the next morning and what happened? You were empty again. This is why Jesus uses the language, I'm the living water. Drink of me and you will what? Thirst no more. Eat of my flesh and and you will hunger no more. All over the Bible, Jesus describes himself as a living water, as as an abundance table that you can never run out. He is an inexhaustible well of satisfaction. And that's what he's promising to us. This marvelous light, this all-satisfying God whose design is always good. These passions of the flesh are waging war against you so that you think you can find better satisfaction in sin. This is the past. This is the, the way it. I'll try and give you an example of this. So Saturday, I was in the midst of preparing, continuing to study the scriptures and just pray that God would help me to understand how he's revealed himself. And I got really tired. And I got sleepy. And, and, and I'm like, I deserve to rest. I've worked 60 hours already this week. I deserve to take a break. So this, this desire for rest, now rest is not a bad thing. I'm not saying you shouldn't rest. But at that moment, there was things I had to, so I was in the midst of studying the word and, and I just felt this overwhelming desire. No, I want to be lazy right now. I want to go lay on the couch and do nothing. And it, at that moment, that passion of my flesh to say I deserve to be lazy took my eyes off the beauty of the marvelous, all-satisfying God. And it deceived me to say, no, you, you can go back to that. But for now, let's go get your rest. Or maybe it's food for you. Or maybe it's sex for you. Maybe it's drugs. Or maybe it's the approval of man that is your all-satisfying, something you desire, that takes you, your mind and your heart off the beauty of this marvelous light, who God is in Christ. And it draws you away from being in all of this. And Peter's saying, put it to death. Do not... Gratify those desires. Instead, grind, work, fight, because their sin is waging war against your soul. And I just want to say a special charge to the men in this room. This is the greatest charge that God has given to us. It's to be those who fight daily for our homes. Those who fight daily to stand up in truth and say, I know we're tired, but we're going to open God's word because we believe he is satisfying and we want to read his truth. Man, this is why we wake early and pray over our families. Man, this is why we are those who have intentional conversations around the dinner table. Even if you're single, this becomes you begin to become that man even now. 
Men, we've got to be those who fight and lead the charge to put to death the passions of the flesh and pursue this marvelous light that is God. Again, how do we abstain from this? Paul's been doing it in numerous ways. Some of the two that we've seen is to long for the pure spiritual milk, spiritual milk of the word. To prepare our minds, to be self-controlled when it comes to the passions of the flesh. Another one that Peter would say, I think Peter would echo Jesus' word. If your right hand causes you to sin, what do you need to do? Chop it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, what do you do? You pluck it out. Now, I hope I don't see anyone show up next Sunday with one less hand or one less eye. But he's using this hyperbolous, hyperbolous, hyperbole to show the seriousness of sin. Sin will only destroy you. We fight against it hard. And we fight it by the pure spiritual, pure spiritual milk of the word. We fight it by being those who are self-controlled when it comes to this passions of the flesh. If you struggle at night with your eyes wandering on your phone, then throw your phone in the other room when you go to bed. Don't have a computer in your bedroom where no one can see the screen. Put to death the passions of the flesh. If your family struggles with TV, take the TV, open your garbage can, and throw it in the garbage can. I'm not kidding. We have to take sin that seriously. Because we have been fed a lie by sin, saying you can have Jesus and the world too. So Peter charges us and charges the exiles here in this area that we are to wage war against the flesh. This does not mean we mutilate ourselves. This does not mean we um, intentionally harm ourselves so that we understand the sufferings of Christ. No, it does mean, though, that we meditate on God's suffering often and frequently. It does mean that we allow others into our darkness in our lives so that they can speak truth and encourage us. But the interesting thing is he doesn't just go to what we are not to do, but he says, here's something we become. Look at verse 12. One of the human traits that we see here is that God's people become those who live differently among the world. Look at verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Beautiful is another way you could translate this word and it's translated in the scriptures. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. See, God's people as exiles are those who wage war with an inward discipline against the passions of flesh. But we are also those who intentionally and energy spend time doing good deeds before a watching world. Ten times. How many? Ten times in this letter, you hear Paul or Peter, excuse me, saying good deeds, good deeds live in a, such a different way. Look at just a few of them. We just read one of them. We, you see them in 114, 122, 219 and 12. Look at the next one, 215. It says, for this is the will of God. How many of you have ever asked that? What's God's will for my life? Here we go. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. He says, live as those who do good things. That's just one of them. We could go further to 220 or 31 or 310 or 44 or 417 or 55. 
Peter just constantly says, who you are, who you are, put to death the flesh, grow in your passions and desire for God. Now live differently among the world. But remember, how does he encourage us to live differently is to first do what? Know who you are. Know what God's done for you. Know Christ and what he's purchased and plead with God. God, make me a loving person. God, make me compassionate towards my enemy. God, make me one who humbly submits himself under authority. God, make me one who loves to honor other people, not take the seat of honor. God, make me, make me into these people because I know I'm following in the footsteps of Christ. And for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And for the same joy of what we have, we become those type of people. Peter is just reminding this idea that we are to live differently. Again, we saw verse 9 through 10, who you are. Verse 11, this passions and desires that need to be changed and put to death. And then 12, we see what? There's a life that lives differently as a result of these things. This is the flow of what Peter's doing. He says, now we begin to live differently. And again, I want to press on some, what I believe some very can be touchy things. This does not mean the church is the one wagging the finger at the, the immoral world. I don't know about you, but I read Facebook and all I ever see is the church slandering the world. And that's not what this says. This says we will become those who are slandered because of our good deeds. We flip the table. They're out serving people who are in need and we're wagging our fingers at their immorality and we're the ones being slandered. Excuse me, we're slandering them. Now we do stand up against gross immoral sins. We stand up against things like Abortion. But we should be the most kind and loving people on the planet. We should have a community that says, I'm in need. I shouldn't want to go to the church because they'll meet my need. And that doesn't mean coddle, right? It doesn't mean coddle them in their sins, but we meet needs. And in the midst of meeting needs, they see a glorious light in us that's different than theirs. And like, man, what is that? What's this hope you have? We're going to see this unfold later. And then we become those, oh, let me tell you about this glorious hope called Jesus Christ. But the language here says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, beautiful. Peter is calling God's people to be known for their life that is honorable. A noticeable difference in a way that is beautiful to the watching world. You know, and this is not something super new for Christians. They've been doing it from the early part of Acts when God birthed his church by his spirit. And this is not something new for us that we should be a honorable people. We live distinctly. But I want, you, I want, I want us to guard against this. And, and I, we're going to see it unfold in 1 Peter, but I'm just going to kind of give us the... This does not mean we have the upper nose as we walk around. I'm honorable. I'm holy. This is not how he says this holy life is not one where you say I am better than because Christians above all else know the depths of their sins. And it doesn't mean we coddle sin, but it means we love people in their sin and we proclaim the excellences of him who calls us out of sin and into something all satisfying and eternal. Are we those type of people? 
Are we the finger waggers on Facebook? Are we those who seem to intentionally or unintentionally push people away because we have an agenda? Our lives are called to be different. Our, call, our lives are called to be that which is honorable. And, and, and Paul is going to kind of go through this now Christian, or excuse me, Peter's going to go through this Christian ethic for the next several chapters. He's going to talk about how we become a people who lovingly submit to governmental authorities, to angry taskmasters, how wives and husbands, our relationship is a beautiful portrait of something glorious. He's going to talk about when we suffer. We don't suffer for wagging our finger. We suffer for what? <coughs> excuse me, suffer for doing righteousness, living out these good deeds. I think of many stories throughout church history. Think of one particular missionary couple that was arrested in Japan by the Imperial Army during World War II. And the husband was was intentionally separated from his family. His wife and his children were put in one. And he was placed in another room and he was stripped naked and chained to the floor. And he said there was one particular captain of the guard. He would come in. He, He would come in and he would just stare at him, mock him, but then he would intentionally take a a broomstick and he would just hit him one time. And then he'd walk out. And this this, this missionary, this this man who was stripped naked before this man, constantly ridiculed, constantly, he wasn't wagging his finger saying, why don't you stop doing this? He preached Christ. And listen to what he says. He says this, every time he chose to beat me, I chose to preach Christ with joy in my heart. Because every time he tried to beat me, he did it for three solid years. Suffering, taking the abuse of this man. And he didn't want to wag his finger back. He said, no, I've been getting something greater. And I just want to declare it to him constantly. Now we don't, the story's never complete. He says, I never knew if this man was converted or not. He heard stories that at his trial, he was persecuted and put to death for war crimes that he professed faith in Christ. And he says it was because these people were so different. When you hit them, they smile and preach Christ. When you shame them, they didn't try to shame back. They didn't retaliate. And this is the type of people we have to be in our culture. Those who continue to love, proclaim excellencies. And I want us to pay attention to this last section as we finish up look here he says keep your conduct honorable verse 12 before the gentiles so that so what's the purpose of our good deeds so that when they speak evil against you as or they speak against you as evildoers and we're going to see later on it's the language of slandering says they may see your good deeds they who's the they there those who are ridiculing slandering you or speaking evil against you they will see your good deeds and do what and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, you, I think what Peter's trying to do, he's saying two things here. He's saying all things will be, all things that are in darkness will be put into light one day, right? We, we see this all, all things that are hidden one day when Christ returns, it'll all be made very clear. But only those who are indwelt by God's Spirit can glorify God. And so I really, I mean, if we, I think we're going to see Peter unfold this, this idea that their constant love and affection and proclamation of Christ, their good deeds, their kindness, first we're going to see it silence them, 
then it shamed them, then at some point, God in His Spirit and His kindness, when He sees fit, He breathes new life into people. Sometimes this might take years. Years. Some of you have been there. You've been sharing the gospel with some people for years. Keep the faith. Share the gospel. Love the world. And let God in His kindness show and breathe life into these people. We are not mudslingers. We are compassionate people standing on truth. Absolutely. Unwavering on truth. Absolutely. But we don't use truth as a weapon. We become those who are compassionate, living for our king before a watching world. So what was the answer to our two questions? As we started this section, who are you? And maybe you're here this morning and you're like, I, I, honestly, I don't know who I am. I don't know. I just want to implore you just to, to heed the words of Peter, to, to spend time in the scriptures. If you don't have a Bible, I would love to give you a Bible and a study together. But look to the one who became the living stone, Christ himself, and, and know that he, he desires to give his people a name which is above every name. Because they're attached to His. And maybe you know, maybe you, you do know the Lord and you're indwelt by His Spirit. Become someone who loves to think on your identity in Him. Parents, talk about it to your children constantly. That in Christ we are. Husbands, talk about it to your wives. Wives, encourage your husbands with it when they're down and they're struggling because the world's pushing back on them. Remind them that the world doesn't define you. Christ in His life though, do. And secondly, what do you think your life does before a watching world? It's called to declare light. By intentional acts of kindness, thoughtfulness, serving both of the church and the watching world. So that they might be silenced when they call us evildoers. But until that day, brothers and sisters, keep on serving. Keep on on proclaiming because what we have is greater than anything this world has to offer. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, we come now to the end of our time in your scriptures, Father, for this moment. And Father, we ask that you would help us to think about who we are. And Father, I pray by your spirit you would expose the idols in this room, the things in the lives of people that are not you. Father, I pray that you would help them to see them as totally unsatisfying and they would go to the one who is the living stone. And Father, we ask that you would help not only these situations, but you would empower us as your people to live as those who put to death the 